Our Bibles of Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is another one of those psalms we classify as a lament, a psalm of, of, of sorrow to some extent. It also can be labeled a complaint, which makes it a little bit different from other laments that we've seen. Now, when I say complaint, I don't mean in the modern sense of kvetching over every little thing that doesn't go our way. We are a, uh, we are a complaining culture and world today, uh, which the very heart of it is sinful. As we pray this psalm, as we enter into it and into its complaint, we are permitted to do so. It is not sin to do so if we do so in a manner that is respectful of the office the Lord holds over us uh, and so forth. We're going to, it's a longer psalm, so I will not read it in its entirety at this time, but we will read it in its entirety as we come to its various sections, which are three. And let's be honest, this will become very apparent Sometimes God seems asleep at the helm. And I think we've all experienced that reality, that d- those days of darkness. And when the disciples, as when the disciples encountered the life-threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee, while Jesus was comfortably asleep, asleep in the stern of the boat, The disciples were panicking. It's downright perplexing at times to us when God seems detached from our troubles and silent during those periods of testing and confusion. And they are many and often frequent. The feeling of abandonment is a common human experience, as we considered last week. If there are themes that, are, that seem repetitive in these psalms, it's because we need to hear them time and time again. That's how God crafted his Psalter in order that we might worship him, and he repeats those themes that we need to hear often. But what is the reality Does God temporarily ever lose control? Does his sovereignty have limits for us? Does God really sleep even when we plead with him to awake? Pagan gods who do not exist... Pagan gods do, as Elijah mockingly seems to indicate on Mount Carmel in his contest with the prophets of Baal. The false prophets plead, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or relieving himself. 
or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Psalm 44 is a prayer of that nature. More particularly, it is a lament, and more particularly, it has at its center the voicing of a complaint. And that helps us think about such circumstances as these and teaches us how to pray when we are facing similar situations and when we find ourselves in doubt. A couple of uh, notes again, uh, perhaps reiterating a little bit of last week. We have now transitioned from book one to book two of the Psalter. And there are some significant differences between the two. Book one, the authorship is entirely of David, arguably entirely of David. The first Davidic collection, it's often referred to. Book two, on the other hand, has multiple authors that are named. It begins with a selection of eight psalms from the sons of Korah, which remind us of the goodness of God's grace because Korah was the rebel whom the earth swallowed up as God brought judgment upon their rebellion against God's ordained leadership, Moses, Aaron, and the like. And yet, his sons, his offspring, his progeny, continued under the grace of God as useful servants providing for us words and songs to worship the Lord even today. Book 1 uses primarily the reference to Yahweh, or Lord in all capital letters. When it's speaking of God, he is spoken in terms of Yahweh. Book 2, almost, uh, it's totally flipped. The primary use of the designation for God is Elohim. There is an emphasis in book one on the enemies that are always in conflict with uh, God's purposes in David to build the messianic kingdom. And it reveals the, the continual conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, between Satan and Christ. Book two features the nations. And rather than featuring the conflict, although there is plenty of that and it continues, the psalmist, particularly David's second collection, uh, speak to the nations, holding out to them that the hope is for you too if you would repent and come to the Messianic King. And so there's this more universal scope and a desire to see the nations come into the orbit of God's kingdom. And that's a very interesting theme, which we will only be able to touch on because we won't get to the main psalms where that really becomes a focus. Perhaps Pastor John will delve into that more next year. 
On Psalm 44, it was probably written during a time after some resounding defeat on the part of Israel. Something that was unexpected, uncalled for. We don't have a situation. It's an undesignated defeat. And uh, it throws them entirely into uh, a dither. It begins with a declaration of God's past faithfulness. Rehearsing God's goodness among God's people. Moving into the present reality of perplexity and defeat. Here comes the complaint. And ends, as Psalms often do, with the future hope and the expectation. So it expresses a life that is in confusion, but it also directs us to where our hope lies. And the Psalms always take us from there. Past, present, future is one way one could outline this Psalm. Motir says, a glorious past, a dismal present, and a desired future is a way of outlining it. I outline it in this way, a confession of past faithfulness. A complaining of present indifference, and one might put in parentheses, apparent indifference. Calling for future help. Help, please. Confession of past faithfulness. These are glorious, these are, this is a glorious eight verses and it would be wonderful if we just drew those out and, and let them be the psalm. <laughs> uh, but there's a reason for putting this all together. Listen to this, these wonderful reflections to the choir master according to Lily's, a tune, a mascal, we don't know what that means, of the sons of Korah, a love song. That's for next week, by the way. <laughs> Let's go to Psalm 44. I read the wrong uh, opening. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, verse 1. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in the, their days, in days of old, with you and uh, you, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but, you, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor by their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor in my sword, nor can my sword save me. But you have 
saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. And God, we have boasted continually and we will give thanks to your name forever. Wonderful thoughts. We often allow our minds, I trust, to wander back to those. This is not a reflecting on the good old days, but it is a reflection upon the faithfulness of God in the past. And that's what we do every, every time we come to church on Sunday. We reflect on the faithfulness of God. We rehearse the redemption story in one way, shape, or form once again, and we are encouraged thereby and reminded to walk in the newness of life to which God has called us. Verse 3 verses speak of gospel truth. O God, we have heard with our ears, and your fathers, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days and days of old. The gospel story of the Old Covenant saint was the story of redemption from Egypt, God's oversight in their wanderings through the land, and ultimately the conquest of the promised land. And that's the story of um, those first five books and the early books afterwards as well. This is the gospel story that was retold, uh, told again and again and again. When we come to the New Testament, that story is told in, the story of Christ is told in similar terms as the story of the Exodus and God's faithfulness through the wilderness wanderings. A story that was intended and even now is intended to be told and retold and passed on from generation to generation the way the gospel is intended to be told. And every time we bear witness to Christ, we are simply retelling the story of God's goodness and faithfulness so that people might see the, the faithfulness of, of God, humble themselves before him, confess Christ and be saved. All Israel's victories were at the hand of the Lord and not their own. It wasn't by the might of their weaponry. It wasn't by the bow. It wasn't by the horse. It wasn't by the shield. And it wasn't by their military prowess that they were driven out of Egypt and conquered the the land. It was by God's divine intervention and permission that he redeemed his people. And interestingly, we are saved the same way today. Not because we've figured it out, not because we are smarter than the next person, not because we are Americans or Presbyterians, but because God in his grace has opened our hearts miraculously, given us eyes to see and ears to hear, otherwise they would be stopped and blind, we would be naked, we would be without hope in this world, apart from God's redeeming grace in our lives. By the light of your face, they were delivered, and we today are saved. By the light 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6.4 Gospel truth. Our lives are grounded and founded upon gospel truth. And our lives are transformed through gospel faith. What we have in verses 4 through 8 are fundamentally a confession of faith and its implications. And here is the confession. We find these little snippets throughout the Bible. They're little. We have come to confess our faith with much longer creeds. But they're not super exhaustive. They, they formulate for us those things that are important to embrace and to pass on from generation to generation. And here's one of those short ones. You are my king, O God. That's a confession. Ordain salvation for Jacob. And here is a confession. There is a king whose rule is sovereign. And there is a salvation that comes from his hands. You confess those things, recognizing that king is King Jesus, there is hope in the gospel. If we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, or Jesus is King, and salvation is in him, the Bible says you will be saved. What we confess, those, that's why it's important that we confess our faith publicly in worship and we take a stand. This is what we believe. This shapes our lives. This establishes a firm foundation and enables us to pass this on from generation to generation. You are my king. You ordain salvation. And then what follows is he thankfully confesses that deliverance is in the hands of the Lord and not his own hands. That he is sovereign on his throne, faithful to his promise, and worthy of all praise. And if that's as far as the psalm went, we could all go home and be happy. But it's not where it ends. Verse 9, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and you have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like the sheep, like sheep for slaughter. And you have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of the, our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, the sight of the enemy, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. The whole tone changes here. It takes us by surprise. The contrast is unexpected. 
And usually when there is a but in the gospel story, the but introduces something much more positive. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to walk according to the principle of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love for which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's what we would expect. To be taken from the low point, but God has done something wonderful. And here the psalmist is in the high point and the butt takes him into the sewer. It's just not expected. It's not the only place that this butt is after the the uh, three chapters of ungratifying description of human nature in the first three chapters of Romans. Chapter 3 ends with, but now a righteousness from God has been revealed. This but doesn't take us there. It takes us back down to where our sin is. And the verses I just read really can be categorized as a litany of sorrows. He just goes on and on and on. Living life in the gospel, it reminds us, living life in the gospel can be perplexing at times. It can test our limits. If God has worked wonderfully in the past, says the psalmist, why not now? Why are we not seeing God God working the way he did in the past. Incidentally, that question is never answered. And that just perplexes us all the more. But the Psalms do that. Because it reminds us that God is not about answering all of our questions. He is is about answering our perplexities with himself. And that's what he does. The litany of sorrows, the list of the incongruity of it all, defeat in battle, verse 9, you've rejected and disgraced us, you've not gone out with us with our armies, it's as though we've been abandoned, retreat before our enemies, when we had victory after victory, now you have made us turn back from our foes, and for those who hate us have gotten spoiled, they've pillaged us. We've been ravaged. You have taken, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. We've been enslaved. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Those who are the apple of your eye, your treasured possession. Scattered, ravaged, enslaved, 
scorned. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors and the derision and the scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock, the people shamed. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and the reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. And it all reads like a series of accusations. You have done this. You, 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 you. And yet in saying all of that, we have been given permission in these words to pray to God in these perplexing times. And let me also say that this litany of um, perplexities, this litany of sorrows, is all only in appearances. And that's not something that the psalmist in this moment can see. The sorrows are all sorrows in appearance. But God has his overarching purpose that he may or may not desire to reveal to us. This complaining of present indifference not only contains a litany of sorrows, but then the, comes the bold complaint. Verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you. So we think. And we have not been false to your covenant. Perhaps in the larger picture of things this is true. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your ways. Yet you have broken us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten your name, the name of our God, or spread out our hands to foreign gods, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. For the sake, for your sake, we are killed all day long and regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That's a bold complaint. On the basis of all of these sorrows that we have just named, the psalmist has a complaint that we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Essentially, they complain in Job-like fashion that their treatment is unwarranted. The psalmist does not understand the silence and the inaction on the part of God, who really owes them or us no explanation. We are called to walk by faith and not by sight. Psalmist does not understand these things at this moment, but in the end, they don't even realize what they are saying because what they wind up saying is something that has eternal import and finds its way in the glorious chapter of Paul in Romans chapter 8. And there is the answer to this prayer coming a thousand years perhaps later. The immediate answer is to call and to wait. To call and to wait. And that's what faith is. Calling on the name of the Lord 
and waiting on his time. Abraham waited, and he never realized, never saw the things that were promised. He only saw them from a distance. But he was looking beyond the things of this world to a a city of a different kind altogether. And that city was a city whose builder and maker is God. God himself. The new Jerusalem, which one day would come down out of heaven and join his church with the very light and glory of God. It would need no, no orbs of light to give it light for Christ and the Father would be the light of that city. And if a psalm like this gives us that kind of vision, it has done its work. This has both corporate and personal applications, does it not? We confess these things in worship, but when we struggle in and of ourselves on our own walk, this psalm can help us land where we need to land in the midst of these perplexities. Andrew Boner has called this psalm the cry of the slaughtered sheep to the shepherd. And here is the gospel hope calling for future help. Psalmist uses the word that is somewhat striking, awake. And by that I do not believe that the psalmist thought that God was asleep in at the helm, although it felt like that. That God arouse, come to our aid. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself and do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Incidentally, this is not the first time in the Psalms that we've seen the question why. Nor is it, is it something that we have never asked ourselves. Why did my loved one die? Why did this accident happen? Why did I get a bad doctor's report? Why is life turning against me? Why is this? Psalm 13 is a good reminder. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And the psalm does never answer the question. Never answers. Three more weeks. Two months. And it will all be done with. God appears silent, but he answers the psalmist in Psalm 13, not with information, he answers it, answers him with himself. Yet I will trust in your unfailing love. And if God can lead us to that point, the psalm has done its work in us. Michael Wilcox has said that this, it is simply that unaccountable things do happen in this world. And either he will not give or we could not grasp the explanation of that. Rather, the immediate answer is to call and wait. For the promise is those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The key verse here, of course, is Psalm 
22. It's a verse that the Apostle Paul inserts in his treasury of grace in Romans chapter 8, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He raises that question. And this is a psalm that beats a path to that moment. It raises the ultimate question, who will separate us from God's sovereign grace? Who will separate us, Paul says, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, how about famine, or nakedness? Or danger of sword. Paul says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then he says, I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor demons will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we rest in these things, our complaint is answered. The storm on the lake, which I mentioned at the beginning of this message, compresses the timetable of this psalm into a much shorter period, into a moment of momentary desperation. The disciples were with Jesus. What glorious thing! And Jesus had done many wonderful things before their eyes. But now in this moment, a storm came up that threatened to take their very lives and end their existence on this world. And in panic, they flee to Christ, who is comfortably sleeping in the stern of the boat. And what is their accusation? Don't you care? And that's what the complaint here in Psalm 44 essentially is. The the psalmist is saying, don't you care? Look at the mess we're in. Don't you care? Where are you? Awake. Wake up. But Jesus does care. Our Heavenly Father does care. He knows our tears. He holds them all in a bottle. He still speaks peace to our troubles. As Jesus rose from the stern of the boat, chiding them briefly, he stood up and graciously spoke to the wind and the waves and said, be still. And calm came over the lake. And they knew in a moment There was only one person, one individual who could speak a word and change the whole course of history, of creation, who could make creation respond to his command. And that was the one who said, let there be light, let there be a firmament, let there be, let there be clouds gathered and land and animals and let there be Man and woman, let there be. 
Only one person could speak like that was the one who spoke out of the cloud in Job, verse chapter 38 and following at the end of that book. And they knew they were standing in the presence of the very living God. They thought they had known Jesus. And what you would expect from this storm in the lake is a good old sailor song, a little bit of backslapping and high-fiving and so forth. The storm is over. We're safe. We're going to make it to shore. That's what they, you would expect. But we were told, though they were afraid of the storm, they were terrified at Jesus. Because, like Isaiah... They felt, woe is me. I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Why would I even ever have said such things and accused my loving God, my precious Savior, of not caring for me? The psalm ends, rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There it is again. You see those words? I underline them in my Bible with a red marker. This is the 23rd time now in the psalms that steadfast love is mentioned. And many more are before us. The steadfast love, his tender mercy, his glorious gospel, all of it is bound up in the person and work of the greater king of David. Redeem, and who is the redeemer, who will redeem for the sake of his steadfast love. Sometimes we are all left, all we are left with is to plead and wait and trust in God's redeeming grace and steadfast love. That's all we have. And that is enough. That is enough. Zacharias or Sinus. You may have heard of him. He is the author with Casper uh, Olivianus of the, anyone want to say, the Heidelberg Catechism. Something that this church used to stand on, still does, although you've kind of added the Westminster tradition as well. Wonderful catechism. Zacharias Ursinus said, when the believer is smarting under the rod, let him not say, God is now punishing me for my sins. That can never be. That is most dishonoring to the blood of Christ. God is correcting thee in love, not smiting thee in wrath. That he did to his son for your sake and mine. Our Heavenly Father, as we draw this, these thoughts to a close, we, we confess that this psalm is been one that has been on our lips, whether we've read this recently or not. We do know the perplexity of hearing about the glorious past, living in the perplexing present, and longing for the future redemption 
which most certainly will be ours in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that we might utilize this prayer rightly and that we might be led by it to where we need to be, resting in your steadfast love. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.